Hi everyone, Amrit here. So as you know, myself and the team work hard to bring you an all new episode of Startup Dads every week without fail. But over the Christmas period, we're taking some time off to enjoy with family. The show is Startup Dads after all. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to replay some of our favorite episodes for all of you. For any new listeners, this is a golden opportunity to discover some Startup Dads classics. And for our regulars, it's a chance to get some of our guests' knowledge bombs internalized. This episode with Fred Destin, the legendary venture capitalist and founder of Stride.vc, first ran in April 2021. Enjoy. Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child who was born last December. Welcome back to another episode of Startup Dads. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to bring Fred Destin to the show. Uh, Fred is the founder of Stride VC, a hundred million pound seed stage fund based in London. He was the lead investor and board member for companies such as Kazoo, Zoopla, Deliveroo, PillPack, and others. His portfolio has a total enterprise value of more than $20 billion, and he's generated more than $1.4 billion of value to his investors. Fred, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming. It's my pleasure to be here, Amory. Brilliant. So Fred, look, that portfolio I've just named, you've got a portfolio that most investors can only dream about. But what I've noticed is the market tends to zero in on the rewards rather than the failures in the VC world. And we all know that venture is also about risk and you have to take lots of risk before the rewards come along. So can you talk a little bit about your perspective on risk and reward at work and also with your kids? Well, let's start maybe on the work side. Um, I think the objective of venture capital is not to necessarily determine winners because that's almost impossible to do. What you need to do actually is understand the balance of risks that you're taking. Um, so to make that clearer, sometimes you will have companies that fail, but actually the original decision was the right decision because the type of risk and the balance of risk that you took was, was the type of risk that you should be taking. So the question we ask ourselves very often is, are we taking enough risk and are we taking the right type of risk? And what you find, and this is human nature, people tend to zero in on successes and failure. If you take Zoopla as an example, when I did the original seed check, so the first 500 came to company, my own assumption was this probably wasn't going to be a big business. And, you know, I couldn't really foresee a $3 billion exit to Silver Lake. What I could see, though, was, you know, phenomenal entrepreneur and a market that had probably five or six established players, which were real estate publishing companies, but that was screaming for uh, reinvention. And so the, the type of risk you took there was, okay, so we know we're going to be able to build traffic. We know we can build a better product, but we have absolutely no idea how we're going to monetize. And the reason for that is that, you know, the estate agents at that time were uh, all locked into the big platforms and it wasn't easy to see how you'd break in. Well, it turns out, you know, we managed to buy one of those pretty cheap and, and, and kind of acquire a revenue base for the company. I mean, there's no way I could have foreseen any of this at the beginning. So, you know, we don't have foresight. What we do have is the ability to 
analyze and, and understand the type of risk we're taking. Now, if you think about risk taking more generally, what I've learned in my life being a European is I grew up in an environment where my dad was the first to go to college in his family. And, you know, he bought everything on credit because they had no money and he made it to one of the top schools in Belgium. And, and he grew up with, uh, with a desire to make sure that he had safety in his life. And on top of that, you know, his parents went through the war. And so they were marked by, you know, for a long time, I think by this uh, feeling of, again, the need for security because, you know, for a while they had trouble finding potatoes to eat and, you know, that sort of impacted their psyche. So I grew up in this environment where it's like, hey, get a good job, you know, be safe, have a base. And then money doesn't matter, but money was a key to, to safety, right? And then once you had safety, you had choice. That was the thinking. Well, I don't think that's true. I don't think that was true at the time. It's certainly not true today. Because today we live in this fast-moving, chaotic environment. Nobody's able to predict the future. And in fact, the need for safety, which is a basic human need, stands in the way of the ability to find yourself and to take extreme risk actually when you're young and to develop as a, as a human that thrives on chaos. So if I had to do it again, I would say, hey, and this is advice I'm going to take my kids, which I take the absolutely maximum risk that you can when you're 20, because there are really no consequences. How you manage fear is by thinking through the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario when you're 20 and you take a big risk, like you start a company or you go work at a startup or you, I don't know, you do something crazy. The worst case scenario is probably that you have to go live back at home. Is that so bad? You know, the sun will still shine. You can still go running in the morning. So the, the consequences of failure are actually pretty low. And if you take risks on early and you stumble, you know, you will develop resilience. If you fail later in your life, let's say you've had success all the way through and you've never failed. And then when failure comes, it's a, it's a huge surprise. It's something you take very personally. It may have consequences on your family, your kids, your mortgage. Yeah. And so it becomes sort of a huge thing. But if you've experienced failure young um, or taken risks young, then I think you're kind of you realize that, you know, there's really not as much downside as people realize. And so one of the things I'm definitely telling my kids is find yourself when you're young, do stupid things. I mean, not stupid, but, you know, do risky things, disagree yeah. with your parents and go explore for yourself what the world has to offer. It's so true. And I think, you know, you touched on some really key points there that I think so many people go through from whatever their life circumstances, see life as very linear. And it really isn't. And it's becoming less and less linear. It's becoming more and more chaotic. And I think you're absolutely right. Making sure that you give your children the chance to embrace that. It's so valuable. You know, lots of reward comes from sustained listening, learning and improvement. If you think of life as not linear and actually you can change, but you must learn and you must learn, iterate and improve rather than rely on a eureka moment of genius. Your Zupra example was great. You know, not necessarily an obvious path to success, but a really great entrepreneur who needed to experiment and try different things. This is quite well known now, I would say, but one of the key learnings is that cemeteries are full of Mozarts. You know, genius doesn't spring out of nowhere. In fact, if we think about Mozart himself, I think there's been some deeper studies done about how hard his dad pushed him from the age of four or five. Yeah. And that, you know, statistically speaking, there are plenty of Mozarts around. It's just that not that many people will push their kids that hard that early. By the way, I'm not sure that's, don't think that's a key to happiness, but, you know, what it goes to show is that this is the 10,000 hour theory, right? So 
anything you do reliably, repeatedly, you will get good at. We know this is also related to compound improvement. There are no eureka moments in anything. So what you can do if you're trying to get fit is you say, I'll do five minutes a day, then eight, then 10, then 12. So this is all about habit forming. And uh, if you read James Clear, it's probably the best on this. You know, his book, Atomic Habits, is fantastic. But it's like every meaningful change you're going to do in your life starts with one step. And the same is true for starting startups. It's like, you know, the number of people I've met who talk about idea X, idea Y, and what if we could do this? And it's like, well, take the first step. The first step is, you know, go to the Starbucks coffee shop and you know, offer a coffee to someone and say, I want to talk to you about my idea and get some feedback. Okay, do that for 20 days. So now you've taken a step towards actually creating a company. I think this this kind of breaking down complex projects into component parts and taking step one is key. And with kids and learning, that is, of course, at the heart of it. I, my 13-year-old uh, got off TikTok and started really drawing. <laughs> And she drew by hand every day, and it's been a year and a half. And now she's on Procreate, and she does. She's starting to do like absolutely amazing work. You know, there's this real joy in making. And now it's like, okay, so how do we create space for our kids to kind of get crafty? And get crafty is really about developing skills patiently. And I think yeah. the the skills you develop in work. So I do venture capital. I consider venture capital to be a craft, and the craft is in organization design. It's in um, mm. coaching people. It's in understanding risk profiles. So it's a craft that's quite abstract, but it's still a craft. And you get better at it because you pay attention every time you have a meeting. It's not just another meeting with you trying to decide whether to invest. You're learning, you're providing feedback, you're thinking about the things you could have done better. There's immediate feedback loops, and we try and do that as a team. And you gradually, you know, little by little, every interaction, you get better. And if you do that reliably for 20 years, you should get pretty good at whatever you've chosen to do, right? It's one of the blessings of being able to run a startup where, you know, you can derive tremendous amounts of joy in the craft of what you do. And it's a really, that's a great analogy that straddles the kind of startup and dad life. And it's also not about outcomes. We know it's not about outcomes. Mm. So let me tell you what the Zoopla IPO felt like. Nothing. We <laughs> went to the LSE. I was right behind Alex. He pushes the button at 9 a.m. or whatever it is. The shares start trading. We get into the other room. We have a little glass of champagne. We sign the registers. And then we all looked at each other. We're like, all right, let's get back to work. Right? It was like an eight-minute high. And then your body chemistry readjusts. And you're like, well, that was cool. So it's really, really not about outcomes. And anybody who's had outcomes knows that. So it is about the journey. What's the journey? The journey is a making journey. You know, it's really about enjoying the work as you're doing it. I think the old Buddhist Zen masters used to say, when you're brushing your teeth, only brush your teeth. In other words, do the task you're doing, calm the monkey brain, be in the moment. If you're fully engaged in what you're doing, especially if it's with another person, you know, there is joy and meaning in the making. The presence is something it's got harder and harder to maintain in the world, the, the multi-sensory, multi-stimulatory world. Yeah, and so you want to create, it's almost like this is all about intent, I suppose, right? So if we talk generally about how to organize your life, you know, we're all task list driven, which is a disaster. The task lists are like, they never end, they constantly grow, they're, they're like 
cancer-like in nature, right? It's like, you know, un unwanted reproduction of cells, right? And so you're like, okay, well, let's flip that around. What things are important to me and how do I manage blocks of hours in the week and the day so that I'm doing the important stuff? And there are trade-offs in that. For me, the trade-off, for example, is ignoring email. I don't care about email. And it took me years to get there because I felt so guilty. But now I'm like, I may or may not respond to your email. If I put myself in a mindset where responding to emails is a KPI, I die or I don't do anything meaningful, right? So similarly with, with your kids, it's like, okay, you know, you, you need to be intentful by creating environments in which you can be present. The other thing about habit forming habits is there can't be any choice. If you have to make a choice between should I go to the gym or should I play with my kids versus work, work's always going to win every time, yeah. right? There's always something urgent you got to do that's like, oh my God, I haven't responded to X or Y. The most important things are usually the most painful things uh, or the most, they might be demanding from a thinking standpoint or they might be difficult from an emotional standpoint. So typical example, which, you know, is going to make you smile, but as a VC, 90% of the time I have to say no to people. And sometimes I have to say no to people I really, really like. I mean, now I, I have realized that, you know, the founders need to know really quickly and it's not really a, a discussion point, but I will put up for three or four hours calling the founders who I know I need to call because I'm like, it's an emotionally loaded discussion and I'm quote unquote inflicting pain. And so I delay. What's happening in the meantime? Well, that thing is looping in my head and I'm replaying 15 times how I'm going to run the discussion, etc. So it's actually distracting me from what I should be doing. Uh, I've delayed giving the message to the founders, probably waiting anxiously to know what we're going to decide. And so that's a classic example of procrastination creates these you know, toxic loops in your head because you're putting off the thing you most need to do. Probably enemy number one for us is procrastination. Boredom is something I like and downtime. Because actually, if you don't schedule your kids at all, and you find a way to take the devices away or they themselves put the devices away, when they're bored, they'll self-organize. And then they will be forced in a way to kind of find things to do. And there's real power in boredom. Now we know boredom is important for creativity and brain development, et cetera, right? Because it's a time when you, you sediment what you've learned and you recompose yeah. it and, and you express your creativity. But it's also very important for just like, so people are just forced to, kind of take ownership you know nobody's coming for you to deliver an experience so you better go yeah. create that experience and i suppose as someone who's so deeply rooted in technology that's part of your life how do you think about the role of technology because like you say nowadays you've got this magical device that quite frankly can defray boredom indefinitely but in quite a destructive way if not managed and I'll speak honestly, you know, I struggle with this myself, right? Because my mobile device, my phone is a source of my work. It's a source of my learning. It's a source of uh, music. It's a source of so many things. The boundaries are so blurred as to what's positive and what's negative that it's not obvious how to partition that. I mean, if we go back to habit forming things, you know that one of the best ways to form good habits is to remove the trigger. So for example, if you don't want to eat ice cream, don't buy ice cream Yeah, I mean, you know, at the most basic level. So uh, for example, I don't have any cookies in the house ever. 
Yeah. And you know, there's no Oreos, there's no nothing. So my kids have to eat nuts and whatever they <laughs> whatever they can forage, so to speak. And I make no apologies for it. I'm like, you'll just eat whatever's out there and none of it looks like a sweet or a cookie and there's no fruit juice and you know, so what do they drink? They drink water. Now when we go to the restaurant, they also drink water because they're used to it. So same with mobile phones. So if you don't want to use devices so much, have rituals about putting them away. So very often when my kids are here, there's a specific drawer where I hold my keys and my wallets and stuff, and I just put the phone in there. And guess what? I forget about it, you know? And I made sure that, you know, I have a nice audio system. You know, I've got a little iPad, but there's no apps on the iPad. The only apps on the iPad are recipes for cooking uh, and the music, um, none of my personal stuff, no messages, no FaceTime, nothing. So this device is sort of a pure utility device and you're not allowed to connect it to anything. The moment you do, you're screwed, right? So Twitter is blocked on it. You know, it's like this thing is just designed for a specific purpose. So now I've taken the trigger away and I don't judge myself for lack of discipline. I don't judge myself for like, oh my God, you know, I don't have the willpower to stay away from my device. Like nobody has. So yeah. the only thing that's going to work is like put it out of sight and that should be the ritual. Then you have a fighting chance. It's... um in many ways, very heartening to hear someone who's created so much value in the world struggling with many of the same problems that all of us do. So I think you've probably given many of our listeners a good bit of confidence there. I mean, two things I would say is one is you can't and you shouldn't judge yourself. We always judge ourselves. Oh my God, I'm not doing the right things or whatever it is. This is a, this is a losing battle. You have some of the world's best designers, behavioral uh, psychologists and addiction specialists who are designing the product. You're not going to win. <laughs> you know, like the reality is like there is like an entire body of expertise that is working towards addicting you. So, okay. So, all right. So now we know that's a given. So don't judge yourself and just move into habit forming mode and not judging yourself, by the way, I think applies to a bunch of things because a lot of what we do in work and in life is actually imposed by the way in which others see us, right? Mm -hmm. Society expects you to do X and you should raise your kids a certain way. Where are all these rules coming from? And the rules are infinite. You know, what your house looks like, where you work, what's the definition of success is. And, you know, especially we live in a world that's more and more formatted that way. It's like, okay, well, where's the freedom in that? And who set the rules? And why do the rules apply to you? And in fact, why do any rules apply? Because we're all on a journey of self-discovery, self-improvement. And, you know, let's keep all this alive. There are no rules to anything. Um, so let me delve into a bit of relationship advice, if I may say so. Of course. Um, why do most marriages end up in a weird place that's unexciting? Well, partly unexciting is okay, because you can't live your life with absolute passion all the time, and that would be exhausting. But partly it's because relationships stop being alive. So you take them as a given and you think, well, I chose my life partner and we're going to have kids and we're going to die together. And you get into a mindset where that relationship effectively stopped living. Now you're in functional mode of like, what trade-offs do we make and how much space does work take? It was like, well, okay, guess what? Whatever the percentage is, 60% of people divorce or 70 or I don't know what the statistics are. They divorced because their relationship has stopped moving forward. And so they took risk out of the relationship by saying my relationships are given and then the relationship withers. Okay, so relationships have to be living things. 
and there is no guarantee of success. And you're going to keep evolving and you'll evolve in different ways by definition. Don't take your relationship as a given. It's not a given. Statistically, it is likely to fail. And so if you want to keep it going and you value it, actually take risks with it. And some things mm -hmm. that were acceptable to you five years ago are not acceptable today. Some needs that were met in a certain way three years ago are not met in the same way today. And if you keep understanding that there is a risk of failure, you keep it alive. And you both want to respect yourself in that. So it's how am I evolving? And do I recognize myself in this relationship? And also recognize that the other person is going to be evolving. And the same is very true with your kids. There is no guarantee you're going to have a great relationship with your kids. What I can guarantee you, though, is if you don't understand who they are, you will have a poorer relationship than if you do. But so you can't have any preconceived ideas of who they're going to be and how they're going to be or how you're going to be with them. And if you're, if you're afraid of failure in your relationship with your kid, you're actually increasing the chance of failure. And they will sometimes have conflict with you. So this, in a way, goes to conflict avoidance. Conflict's not a bad thing. When you have important things to talk about, they may end up being conflictual. Your kids actually will define themselves in conflict with you at times in their lives. You know, they'll disagree with you on things that are essential to you. Have a fight about it. And, you know, then they will find themselves in their own truth. And then, you know, you will come to a place where you respect each other and you move. And this is not a fight of you imposing, right? This is not a fight of you telling how the world is. This is, at some level, it's going to be a fight of values. And then you will negotiate an outcome where you understand each other and you may have different values. This is the agree to disagree or disagree and commit, right? And by the way, there's no reason why you wouldn't have that discussion with a 14-year-old. No. I don't know whether you're going to agree or disagree with me here, but one of the things that, as you were talking to me there, I found you were describing to me the really important characteristics of what you want to imbue in a startup, right? Uh, the fact that actually, you know, you, you have to grow continuously. And, you know, with my work, I'm always so aware that the risk of things being the same and the risk of not pushing us forward and innovating thoughtful disagreement, not assuming that we've won, right? These things are so important. And actually speaking very, very openly on the podcast, I think naturally it's very easy to, to make completely the opposite assumptions about probably the most important growth story in your life, which is that with your family. <laughs> uh, and you, what you're saying there is really, that's really powerful. So why do startups win? Startups don't win because, I mean, except in deep tech cases, but they don't really win because they're better at tech or anything. I mean, they, they probably are better at engineering. But, you know, these days, every company is a tech company or has to be a tech company. And most of your established competitors have more means. And so why do startups win? They win fundamentally because they're adaptable, right? So they're a fast-moving, yeah. evolving organism. They're able to respond to market stimulus better. And usually they have better culture which actually is the most sustainable competitive advantage in a startup. Yeah. And that culture itself embeds uh, what you might call anti-fragility, so the ability to respond to chaos. So for example, you don't run a startup uh, with 10, 20, 50, 300 people with the same organizational systems. And that's why they win. They win because they recognize organic leadership because they're able to change the way they operate and the systems by which they operate very quickly, they adapt their KPIs. And so what do you have? You have this, you're, it's a, startups are freaking viruses, 
right? They're like fast <laughs> evolving organisms that infect established industries from the inside. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly they spread way faster than you thought. And so I use fractals as a, most, a more positive image, especially in these COVID days. But yeah. startups are like fractals. You know, they're like repeat a minute unit of perfection endlessly. This is like the Instagram like or the, <laughs> you know, the Facebook share. If you nail the core product really well, and then you find a way to make it repeatable, then these things kind of grow in nonlinear fashion. So that's what you're trying to find in startup. They're like these continuous experiments in search of a mode of scalability. And within that, culture is your most powerful asset, actually. But then the culture has to be very unique to you, right? So good startup culture finds unique characteristics of a group of humans and a group of people and a certain mission they're trying to, they're trying to fill and find a unique way to express that. We've known that since the Netflix days. Well, so your family has cultures and values and yeah. rituals. And the rituals were community rituals where you came together and you know you, you celebrated. You also, sometimes these rituals would create a certain amount of conflict and resolution, et cetera, because you kind of basically put everybody pressure cooker around Christmas and some truth would come out. And you know, that was part of the ritual. Uh, you know, every, everybody will tell you that, you know, going, they've, they're in two minds about going back home for Christmas, right? For a reason. Now, Absolutely. if we live in a, in a kind of postmodern world, we're all super distributed, far away from our families. It's like, all right, so let's be intentful by recreating some form of ritual, including with our kids, et cetera. So, uh, my dad passed away four years ago. So when uh, this weekend, when the kids come, because it was Wednesday, so yesterday, I have like a great set of pictures that we used for the funeral and we'll have a little candle lit. And, you know, it's not meant to be like a sad moment. It's just like, let's think about granddad for mm. a minute. Okay, so that's a ritual. And the rit that's a ritual of remembrance, if you like. Now, I'm, I'm not religious in any way, so you create the rituals out of nothing. But rituals mm. are cool, you know? Rituals are like... Uh, planned moments to come together and express yourself as a community or a family. So, so true. We call them different things, don't we? You know, the, all businesses, startups, they have ceremonies and traditions themselves. And they're the kind of things that bring you, as you say, they bring you together and galvanize you. So I'd like to switch purpose a little now. Um, switch focus a little now and talk a little bit about purpose more broadly. One of the things that I think a lot about with my kids is that for every single-minded teenage founder who creates a world-changing business, there are probably tens, hundreds of millions of kids who've got no idea what they want to do in their lives. And do you think there are any lessons to be learned there? Uh, for sure. So if we think about single-minded founders, it's not necessarily something you want to aspire to, right? Let's just start with that because... Mm or many founders are driven by the need to prove their parents wrong. Uh, you know, there's some kind of driving force that comes from an imbalance from youth or something like that, where they have something to prove to the world. Okay, so that's very helpful if you're a startup founder. Uh, that's not necessarily what you want your kid to be, right? No. Um, so, I mean, we know that building startups is a grind uh, we know that obsession is a is a weight to carry, is an anchor. Uh, yeah. This is not necessarily the sign of a super well-balanced, you know, emotionally <laughs> stable person. So we tend to put on pedestal the wrong kinds of people, including starting with venture capitalists, most of which are assholes and really arrogant. <laughs> and, you know, actually they didn't, they made money because they got lucky. So, you know, please let's not put people on pedestals. To go back to your original point, the vast majority of kids 
don't know what they want to do. And yeah. we live in a system where we're afraid they're not going to get jobs. The school system forces them to make choices early. These choices are very often driven by their skill level at that point in time. So in other words, how good we perceive them to be at math or chemistry or English and sort of what their perceived ceiling of achievement is at that moment. So this, this kind of, these heaviness we put on the early choices, like this is going to determine your life. No, it won't. It won't determine your life at all, actually. It's just a step in the journey of who you're going to become as an adult. And you will probably have three or four chapters in your life anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this kind of incredible weight we put on the kids are like, oh my God, I'm 16 years old. Give me a break, you know? And I don't know what I want to do. So the first thing is like, for us to avoid bringing our anxieties and our fears onto our kids. So it's like, relax, they'll find their way, especially if you give them time to find their way. The second thing is, as you said, most kids don't know what they want to do. Well, okay, give them time to explore. So what I think we need to do is to provide opportunities for exploration, which are a little bit richer than what we typically do, which involve risk. So one example would be, you know what, I'm going to let my 17-year-old go to India, build homes. I mean, for most parents, that's probably a ballsy thing to do. The mm. likelihood anything bad happens is probably lower than them going out on Soho on a given day. You just may not think of it that way, but I, yeah, I, I bet you true. statistically that's true. And okay, put them in a place where they have to develop resilience, where they get exposed to a completely different view on the world. You know, it is not necessarily serving their CV and their career, and it's not an internship at Stride.vc, uh, you know, or at whatever McKinsey. But, you know, they will learn different things and a different view on the world, and they'll come back with a, like an expanded vision. And, you know, maybe do a bit more of that and just don't pressure them. And in fact, reframe university as a step of learning mm. uh, towards something else. So my eldest wants to study chemistry. And, you know, why does she want to study chemistry? She wants to study chemistry because she got inspired by an exceptional teacher at the end of the day. So this particular teacher, which she's had for two years, has taken a liking to her name's Lena. And, you know, it's like really the person that helps her excel. If you push her on it, she'll say she could have studied English or, you know, etc. So there's something there, but, you know, it's really inspired by the teacher. It's like, well, okay, that's called an accident of life and, mm. and meeting someone who impacts your trajectory. So I'll give you another example. My son, when he was 13, uh, was with me in Boston and we went to TJ Parker's house. So TJ is the founder of PillPack. He had a, I mean, he has a nicer house now that we sold the company for a billion to Amazon, but he had a very humble house in, in, uh, in Somerville. Anyway, so we went there and for a barbecue to celebrate the sale of PillPack and typical TJ style, they're like 10 people and we're cooking ribs and, and there's a guy playing the piano and the guy playing the piano is the person who did the acquisition on behalf of Amazon. And then my son's like a little bit bored because it's all adults, but he's got his card deck with him and he starts showing magic tricks. So he's doing a little bit of juggling with the fruits because he's a very good juggler. And then he's doing magic tricks. And he learned all these magic tricks on YouTube. And he's insanely good, by the way. And you know, I, it's like, just blows my mind. And he went away and he watched like 180 hours of magic trick videos. So anyway, so he does these magic tricks and he's doing them for that guy. 
He's like, hey, what's your name? Uh, I'm Felix. Ah, oh, yeah, how old are you? 13. It's like, do you like engineering? It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I love to understand how things work, etc. It's like, all right, tell your dad when you're ready, I'll give you a job at Amazon. <laughs> and my son to this day is like, this big guy at Amazon said I could work at Amazon. And so I want to go, you know, I'm going to do something like that. And okay, so that's a random encounter that I wasn't even present for. You know, I just had the feedback from him and, and then I ended up speaking to yes. that person who told me the same story. But I mean, okay, so, you know, that was just exposure that led to something that's in his mind now. And he's like, I can go work in California or in Seattle. I can go study in the US. This thing suddenly opens a door where it's like, oh, that could be me. So one thing that I found fascinating and that it took me a while to understand is, quote unquote, how the world works. I mean, I grew up in a middle-class environment in Belgium, but if I look around me, most people went through the same university or the same two or three universities and then would take a job at, you know, accounting at Deloitte or a marketing manager at Sony Belgium or something like that. And most people never leave. And, and that's fine, but that was sort of the rails you were on. It wasn't before I was 20, 26 or 27 uh, working in London that I started to understand how how the world works and in specifically power, money and influence. So you realize gradually over time that if you find the right mentor, if you find the right person who believes in you and they give you a shot, suddenly it opens the doors to something different and suddenly you're, you're on a fast track or, you're, or somebody sponsors you to go study at whatever, you know, Harvard Business School or something. And the world starts to open up and you understand how money, power and influence works. And for most of the people on the planet, we just don't understand how these influence and yeah. money and, and, you know, how that flows, right? And we're kind of being kept a little bit in the dark, which is like, hey, find a job, do your job, you know, buy a house. And, and you just never have access to that world. Now, I used to look up uh, to all these first generation UK entrepreneurs and thinking, oh, my God, they took insane risks early on in the life of the Internet. And, you know, they started something in 96. And isn't that amazing? And then you realize gradually that, oh, you know, it's the second son of a rich family with the most insane safety net with access to capital from when they were young. And, you know, and, and actually, that's why they started that early. That's why they were pioneers. And you kind of go like, huh. You know, it's really interesting how they, they were set up to be those people. And then, of course, they accrue more wealth and more capital and more influence uh, because they, they started from that position. So the more you can help your kids and other kids and everybody actually understand how that world works and the more open we can make it, the more we're allowing people who do the hard work, who have the skills, who have the, the passion to get access to that. And certainly... One thing I'm trying to do with my kids is just to make sure that they are exposed to that stuff and that they understand their ability to impact the outcome, right? Which touches on the nature of leadership. Leadership's fascinating. How does Trump get elected? Well, so this is a single person who you will most probably object to as I do, but who accrued leadership. The same is true in startups. Why does one person rise to leadership and so inspire people to follow them, etc. And, you know, they will hire a set of competent people around them, etc. But there is still leadership at the core of it. And so in a way is how does each person and how do your kids express leadership at their level, whatever that looks like. You know, it could be that you're a leader in a 
SWAT team in the army. It could be that you're a leader in a design studio. It could be that you're a leader without leading other people, but you lead through the excellence of your work as an individual contributor. It's like understanding the power of your own leadership. And I don't mean power in a way of controlling others. I mean power in a more fundamental way, which is your ability to influence and impact the world. So I think this is where we touch on these notions of, you know, um, privilege. And I mean, I'm a middle-aged white guy, right? I'm like, I mean, I'm in the crosshair, <laughs> you know, running a venture fund, like, oh my God. Um, but, you know, this is where you get into the nature of privilege. And the nature of privilege very often has to do with understanding how the system works. Because actually, once you have the keys and you can unlock the doors, you know, you realize that you too has probably more influence than you realize if you know how to exert it. It's amazing. And it's so true. And I think even enlightening someone as to the fact that the world is not linear, um, the fact that you need to take risks, that point you made there about, you know, understanding how the world works, understanding the concepts of privilege, serendipity and experimentation, that's still so important and separate and, 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 and can be taught. So it touches on the concept of luck as well. You know how some people say they're lucky and some people say they're unlucky? Mm, yes. uh, there, there's a guy called James Wiseman, I believe, who studied luck as a concept. And the TLDR of it is the following. Luck knocks on everybody's door at some point. And the people who are lucky are the people who are able to recognize the event when it happens. So he does this quick test. He does a test where he gives people a newspaper and he says, I'll pay you $200 if you can tell me how many ads are in the paper in less than three minutes. And the unlucky people turn every page and try to count as fast as they can and kind of never get there. And the lucky people open. And by the time they get to page three, there is a big piece of wording that says there are 96 ads in this paper. You're done. And so this was all about the mental framework that says i'm ready to embrace luck which means i'm ready to embrace risk and when it comes and knocks on my door i will take the decision to do that right so it could be that you meet somebody exceptional you're on the fast track at company x you're on the fast track at mckinsey you know you kind of don't like it but you know you're on fast track to making partner or something and then you meet somebody exceptional and they come to you with an idea that's crazy but you feel passionate about it and the person's crazy it's like okay Am I the kind of person who will then take that jump? Because suddenly I'm going to open a world that is where I'm empowered to build something and to make the decisions and to, you know, to, and I'm going to learn so much and I'm going to grow as a person. So instead of learning politics at Mac and how to manage clients at Mac, now I'm learning fundamental skills about what I'm able to do without a brand behind me, et cetera. And like, all right, now I'm developing as an individual, right? And so the ability to seize that is I, I think for me is absolutely key. And my career has been not a career. It's been kind of a set of incidents. And so one thing I'll give myself credit for is I've been pretty good at, you know, just kind of sometimes just seeing when stars are aligned, you know, not over planning. You know, when I decided to leave Excel, cause I'm like, I really want to go back to seed. And then Harry Stebbings came to me and he was like, had a you know, a, design, a badly designed deck under his arm to see whether he could raise a pre-seed fund for the 20 VC. I'm like, okay, stars are aligned. Let's do this, right? And and so it's just capturing these moments and then doing something meaningful with them. And, you know, whatever you had in your mind that your future was going to be isn't what your future is going to be. Yeah. The, f- the future is beautifully unknown, right? So true. There's so much in there. Wonderful. 
Fred, before we get onto the last bits, I'd like to ask you the question I ask every guest. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? The biggest lesson I've learned from startups is that everybody starts small. It sounds trivial, but Dropbox started with two people in an apartment building a little file sharing protocol. And so there is beauty and power and potential in small things. And what I've seen from startup continuously is these small teams that are able to outperform large teams, these small teams that are able to attract world-class talent. Because the mission they're embarked on and the way they do things is aspirational and, and points to a, a version of the future that we like. And this is not about money. This is not about you know, your existing network, etc. It's really about whether you believe in what you're building and you're able to to share that with the rest of the world and people will believe you know when you raise money with a laptop and your voice you know that's like the most mm. empowering experience and so if my kids learn that you know they should not give up their dreams and strive to do things that are special and do it in a way where they understand the world around them with with empathy they understand their impact on the world but so they find their own power and they also understand how they're going to impact people around them and they do this in an empathic way i was like okay now i've removed i've removed the walls and the ceilings and the doors and you can go explore and there are no rules as to where you're gonna land you know you could be a massage practitioner you could be an artist like i don't know um you know just 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 allow them to feel that ability within them uh, and like i said everything starts small well fred that was absolutely fantastic uh, i think this is going to be one that you need to listen to a couple of times before you pick take away all the bits but that was really really great time to close up and we like to close with our regular feature startup shout outs a non-sponsored section uh, where we shine a light on some of the organizations in the startup sphere that we admire startup shout outs um, I'm going to give my shout out to landscape.vc and landscape.vc is a fairly young initiative that is trying to uh, provide transparency to the world of venture. And one of my underlying missions or unexpressed missions in terms of building stride is also to improve the quality of venture capital as a product for founders. This is not something I talk about too much because it sounds a little bit arrogant, but in reality, I'm like, how do we make the founder experience of venture capital better? which is partly why I've tried to like open source the thinking of VC so that founders know how the game is played. And I think initiatives like landscape.vc um, are fantastic in terms of driving uh, more transparency in a founder-led way, um, you know, making VCs accountable to a certain extent, uh, but just helping, helping people understand the capital founder match better uh, and also helping VCs raise their game. So that's my shout out for the day. Brilliant. Well, we'll definitely put some links to them in the show notes so people can learn a little bit about them. And as I found myself, uh, that's definitely a skill that we all want to get better at. And I think it, it, it levels everyone up. So brilliant. Uh, 
Fred, again, thank you so much. That was an amazing episode to hear someone with your pedigree and track record talk so openly about, you know, the highs and lows and the challenges that you feel. I think it's going to be really inspiring for our guests. So thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with? Anything you want to tell the uh, the market, the world that, that you're working on at the moment? Well, I think what, what I'm proud of, we're only three years into the journey. And sure, I could point to Kazoo and say we're successful, but I think the reality is we're just building. I'm attracting a new partner. I've attracted a new partner called Cleo Sham, who herself is an operator. And I think my my parting words is, you know, we're all on an endless journey towards perfection that we'll never achieve. It's not about the outcomes. It's about how you get there, why you're doing it. And, you know, the only thing that will carry you through is purpose. And so find a purpose that is true to you. Take pride in how you work and, and things will work out. Um, I want to thank you, Amrit, for this podcast, which allowed me to talk about things that are quite different from my usual uh, venture capital run-of-the-mill stuff. So this was fantastic. Thanks, Fred. Pleasure. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. To join our community of parent founders, head over to the Startup Dance Facebook group. 